In his essay, L'Chaim and Its Limits, Why Not Immortality? Dr. Leon Cass asks, if life is good and more is better, should we not regard death as a disease and try to cure it? This is the After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. While curing death may seem far-fetched, the so-called transhuman project seeks to do just that, and there's been progress over the 21 years since Leon Cass wrote his essay. Cass, who is an Orthodox Jew, wrote the essay as an argument for those with no or with little religion. Wyoming Catholic College philosopher Dr. Daniel Shields gave the participants in this year's Wyoming School of Catholic Thought this introduction to Cass's essay before we broke up into seminar groups to discuss it. Now, as Jim Tonkowicz has told you, um, I suggested this theme of mortality when we first um, started talking as faculty about what we were going to do this summer for WSCT, and I didn't know that Jim had been thinking about it for a while and others had an interest in it as well. But the reason that mortality was on my mind uh, had to do with the COVID pandemic and the world's response to it. We are pro-life had a hard time, I think, articulating what was wrong with all the public health mandates. We'd always emphasize so strongly the duty to defend all human life. Shouldn't we, most of all, have supported lockdowns, mask mandates, and vaccination efforts? We may have doubted their level of efficacy, but surely they would have saved or prolonged at least some lives. But somehow, this seemed different than the defense of the unborn and opposition to euthanasia. Um, it was as if we were all being asked to participate as codependents in the obsessive compulsive behaviors of a germophobic segment of our society. Um, our culture of death was also at the same time deathly afraid of death, um, interestingly enough. Um, now certainly the duty not to kill is much more absolute than the duty not to take risks with other people's lives or our own. But to articulate um, more clearly why we should not accept safetyism, despite the sanctity of every human life from conception to natural death, requires, it seems to me, an awareness of our own mortality and a deeper appreciation of the concept of natural death. And so I thought of this essay by Leon Cass, which had been healing to me when I had first read it many years ago, even though I was not conscious of being afraid of death. Now, some of you may be familiar with Cass, but for those who are not, Leon Cass is a liberally educated man and a medical doctor and a biochemist. He built a name for himself as a bioethicist, and President George W. Bush appointed him chairman of the President's Council on Bioethics, which did really interesting work during his administration. Um, Cass shows off what a liberal education can do for a person. Um, He's full of, he knows science, theology, philosophy, uh, literature, poetry, and he weaves it all together in a really um, rhetorically powerful way, or at least I find it so. Now, Cass is interested in ancient wisdom and the way it is challenged by modern science. Ancient wisdom accepted the inevitability and unpredictability of death. The wise man lives in the awareness that there is a limit to the number of his days and that each day could be his last. So many of the sudden illnesses that today are easily treated 
for example, were life-threatening in the pre-modern world. I kind of saw that with Ivan Illich. He's not He's still in, a, in the modern world, but the medical advances haven't really taken off yet in the middle of the 19th century. And probably his injury could have been treated in the late 20th century, but back then it couldn't. And, and so he died young. Um, okay, modern science has changed all of this. Right? We have antibiotics, surgery, blood transfusion, cholesterol-lowering drugs, antidepressants, and so much more. As Leon Cass says on page 145, that's in the middle there, with medicine's increasing successes, realized mainly in, in the last 70 years, every death is increasingly regarded as premature, a failure of today's medicine that future research will prevent. In parallel with medical progress, a new moral sensibility has developed that serves precisely medicine's crusade against mortality. Anything is permitted if it saves lives, cures disease, prevents death. Regardless, therefore, of the eminence or non-eminence of anti-aging remedies, it is most worthwhile to re-examine the assumption upon which we have been operating, namely that everything should be done to preserve health and prolong life as much as possible, and that all other values must bow before the biomedical gods of better health, greater vigor, and longer life. Right. This includes such things as embryonic stem cell research and genetic enhancement, whose moral difficulties are ignored in the name of longer and healthier life. Now, as Cass says, some people go so far in this direction that they hope to conquer aging itself. Some intrepid souls have uh, themselves cryogenically frozen so that they can be thawed once medicine is advanced to the point that their chronic illness can be cured. I'm told that Walt Disney did this. Um, others hope that they can add decades to their life uh, or perhaps live indefinitely by regenerating their organs and tissues with stem cells or perhaps growing new organs and tissues as spare parts. As long as you have the money to replace things on your car, you can keep it running indefinitely so why not your own body? There has also been much research and some advances in discovering which genes control the process of aging, and lifespans have been greatly extended in some organisms in the laboratory through genetic engineering. Now, for many people, probably most people, the hopes are more modest. They do not expect to live forever or even to 125 uh, but into their 80s or perhaps 90s, trusting to medical technology, consumer protections, and safety procedures and personnel, they do not expect to die young or suddenly. If they get sick or injured, doctors and hospitals will be able to take care of them and put them back on their feet. They feel that death is comfortably far off, and since thinking about death is morbid and depressing, they put it almost entirely out of mind and live as if they aren't going to die. This is in part why COVID induced such a panic at first. We didn't know how to treat it. And even if most people were fine, some healthy people of every age group died from it. It, uh, took, it broke through our self-deception that we aren't immortal. Right. Now, but Cass asks us to think about the big picture. 
Is death an unqualified evil to be avoided as long as possible? Would we want to live forever if we could? If not, how long would we want to live? And in what kind of health? So as he says on page 146, in many ways, one of the best parts of the essay, he says uh, at the end of the second paragraph there, assuming that it were up to us to set the human lifespan, where would or should we set the limit and why? The simple answer is that no limit should be set. Life is good and death is bad. Therefore, the more life, the better, provided, of course, that we remain fit and our friends do too. This answer has the virtues of clarity and honesty, but most public advocates of conquering aging deny any such greediness. They hope not for immortality, but for something reasonable. Just a few more years. How many years are reasonably few? Let us start with 10. Right? Which of us would find unreasonable or unwelcome the addition of 10 healthy and vigorous years to his or her life? We could learn more, earn more, see more, do more. Maybe we should ask for five years on top of that, or 10. Why not 15, or 20, or more? If we can't immediately land on the reasonable number of added years, perhaps we can locate the principle. What is the principle of reasonableness? Time needed for our plans and projects yet to be completed? Some multiple of the age of a generation, say, that we might live to see great-grandchildren fully grown? Some notion, traditional, natural, revealed, of the proper lifespan for a being such as man? We have no answer to this question. We do not even know how to choose among the principles for setting our new lifespan. Under such circumstances, lacking a standard of reasonableness, we fall back on our wants and desires. For most of us, especially under modern secular conditions, in which more and more people believe that this is the only life they have, the desire to pro prolong the lifespan even modestly must be seen as, it express, as expressing a desire never to grow old and die. Now some, of course, eschew any desire for longer life. For them, the ideal lifespan would be our natural one, lived with full powers right up to death, which could come rather suddenly, painlessly, at the maximal age. This has much to recommend it. Who would not want to avoid senility, crippling arthritis, the need for hearing aids and dentures, and the degrading dependencies of old age? But in the absence of these two generations, <laughs> as he continues, but in the absence of these degenerations, would we remain content to spurn longer life? Would we not become even more disinclined to exit? Would not death become even more of an affront? Would not the fear and loathing of death increase in the absence of its harbingers? We could no longer comfort the widow by pointing out that her husband was delivered from his suffering, death would always be untimely, unprepared for, and shocking. Okay. But most radically cast asked the question in the middle of page 147, could longer, healthier life be less satisfying? How could it be if life is good and death is bad? Perhaps the simple view is an error. Perhaps mortality is not simply an evil. Perhaps it is even a blessing not only for the welfare of the community, but even for us as individuals. How could this be? Now, certainly mortality is a curse, right? Both, we know that naturally and through revelation. But could it also be a blessing? Now, 
CAS presents us with four personal benefits of mortality on pages 148 through 150, in addition to the social ones he discussed at the bottom of page 145. I will just list them now and we can discuss them in seminar. He says that mortality provides us with interest and engagement, seriousness and aspiration, beauty and love, and virtue and moral excellence. But Cass acknowledges that in spite of these benefits, we do long for immortality. Why? Not because we want to continue this life forever, but because, uh, quote, that's uh, just above the middle of the page, the humans, uh, page 150, the human soul yearns for, longs for, aspires to some condition, some state, some goal toward which our earthly activities are directed, but which cannot be attained in earthly life. Our soul's reach exceeds our grasp. It seeks more than continuance. It reaches for something beyond us, something that for the most part eludes us. Our distress with mortality is the derivative manifestation of the conflict between the transcendent longings of the soul and the all too finite powers and fleshly concerns of this life. Cast thus raises for us the question of another kind of life after death, but his discussion remains on the natural level without knowledge or certitude about what's hereafter. Is there, any, is there a way that even here on this earth, we can partly satisfy this longing for immortality? He points us in the direction of procreation on page 151. Um, so this uh, second paragraph there. He says, biology has long shown us a feasible way to rise above our finitude and to participate in something permanent and eternal. I refer not to stem cells, but to procreation, the bearing and caring for offspring, for the sake of which many animals risk and even sacrifice their lives. And then the fourth paragraph, he says, simply to covet a prolonged lifespan for ourselves is both a sign and a cause of our failure to open ourselves to procreation and to any higher purpose. It is probably no accident that it is a generation whose intelligentsia proclaim the death of God and the meaninglessness of life that embarks on life's indefinite prolongation and that seeks to cure the emptiness of life by extending it forever. For the desire to prolong youthfulness is not only a childish desire to eat one's life and keep it, it is also an expression of a childish and narcissistic wish incompatible with devotion to posterity. It seeks an endless present isolated from anything truly eternal and severed from any true continuity with past and future. It is in principle hostile to children because children, those who come after, are those who will take one's place. They are life's answer to mortality. And their presence in one's house is a constant reminder that one no longer belongs to the frontier generation. One cannot pursue agelessness for oneself and remain faithful to the spirit and meaning of procreation. Now, as we break into seminars, the questions I want to ask are, in what ways is our mortality a blessing for us? 
And what can we do to enter into possession of and enjoy these blessings? Conversely, what sort of things might prevent us from enjoying the blessings of mortality? I've mentioned repeatedly that this, the previous six, and next week's podcasts were introductions to aid participants attending the Wyoming School of Catholic Thought before their seminar groups. And while the introductions are excellent, the real action happens in the seminars. We've tentatively scheduled next year's Wyoming School of Catholic Thought for June 11th through 16th, and it's not too early to think about attending. Next week, we'll feature the final reading of the 2022 school, Pope Benedict XVI's encyclical Spe Salvi, Saved by Hope. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.